Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast, Week 2 Recap Edition. Man, we had some truly incredible games entertain us this past week, uh, all the way from Thursday straight through to Monday. It was a hell of a week for football. Can't wait to get into it. Uh, EJ, I know we got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to cut this intro short. We are recording at about 7 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, so I'm assuming we're actually drinking coffee for once and, and being functional adults. At least I am. Can I say the same about you? You can. It. Uh, we haven't tried this before. This is new territory for us. Uh, we started just after 6, recording just before 7. So yeah, I'll be slapping coffee down this morning because i got to go to work after this. So uh, we'll start with that. But um, in terms of trying new things, we're also going to introduce a new segment to the show this week. A lot of you came at us last week for games we didn't get a chance to see. And we're going to call this segment The Point After. We're going to do it every week. We're going to touch on things we missed the week before because we just hadn't had time to see all the games in depth and there's a week's worth of hindsight and maybe you know we saw things that we didn't see on Sunday that's the great thing about Twitter and and you as fans quite frankly is a lot of times you bring up things that we just didn't see or flat out missed and we don't want to skip over those or sugarcoat them or anything else so the game that neither one of us got to see last week was the Jags indie game and there was a ton of stuff in there and so we're going to go back on the point after this week and talk about the Jags indie game. We're going to lead with Gardner Minshew because he was terrific in all phases. I had watched the highlights for that game before we recorded last week, but didn't feel comfortable talking about it because I hadn't watched the whole game. The thing that impressed me when I went back and watched the whole game was Minshew was terrific in all phases. Ball placement, timing, manipulation of defenders, creating space in the pocket, footwork. He was brilliant in week one. Wasn't quite as good this week, but this is, again, going back, talking about the week one performance. James Robinson, the running back, is the truth. I was fine with James Robinson coming out. I thought it was okay that he was a UDFA. I thought he was a talented guy, but through two weeks now, he is great. He They've got a running back in Jacksonville that they can lead on. Um, I'm not going to say bell cow because I think that's outdated, but James Robinson can fill that role for Jacksonville quite fine. He's looked great through two weeks. 
Here comes the big one, Brett. You ready for this? C.J. Henderson. Oh, Put in I some know. time on tackling basics. We took a lot of guff for this because we gave <laughs> C.J. Henderson. My Twitter mentions were so toxic after that game. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and we were not avoiding C.J. Henderson. We hadn't watched the game, but as I went back and watched, I absolutely watched Henderson, and no bones about it, he had a great debut, and a lot of that was because he showed effort and big improvement over his college tape in tackling. We gave him no end of crap about being a business decision maker in college, and he deserves real praise because he's worked hard at it. He even got Derrick Henry now one-on-one. So kudos to Henderson. He was very good in coverage, which he always was. That was never a, a thing that we got on him about. Great debut for C.J. Henderson. Another guy that we heaped, uh, well, we didn't heap garbage on, but we basically said he's not as good as people are saying because they're saying he's all everything, and he's not. He's very good at some things, and that's LaVisca Chenault. Our worry with Jacksonville was that Jacksonville wouldn't find a way to utilize him correctly and really maximize those skills, and man, they have. Nice work by the offensive coordinator there. They found a way to flex to LaVisca Chenault and what he's good at, and through two weeks, he's making an impact because they're using him correctly, and you just love to see that with any young player. And can't go can't go up the, the Jacksonville side without talking about Miles Jack. He was on everything from his linebacker spot. His athleticism showed through. He was quick to make decisions. He hit hard. Um, big game for Miles Jack in week one. So what did you see on the Jags side of the Jags indie game? I mean, right down the line, you pretty much hit everything. Minshew's accuracy, particularly down the field, is so impressive. I mean, he was one of the highest rated deep ball throwers last year. I think that's going to continue this year. His connection with DJ Chark is something special. Uh, Jay Gruden is a much better offensive coordinator than he is a head coach. Like the the Agreed. game plan, it's it's night and day. The game planning for Jacksonville uh, is so much better this year with Jay Gruden, and honestly, it's better than even Jay Gruden as a head coach had when he was in Washington. Like I think the fact that his role has been pared down to just figure out how to beat this defense every single week. He's really good at that. So uh, I, I think Jay Gruden should stay in OC for the rest of his career because that's really where he's most comfortable. Um, yeah, the focus is showing through. I'm with you there that uh, the Jags look much more prepared on offense than either the Jags last year or Washington last year. And, and, and the play call sequencing, you know, in terms of how they string together different looks – um, that look exactly the same, but the concepts build off of one another. Like it's it's an actual functioning offense, uh, which I never thought I would say this, but the Jags look like they have their their crap together on offense more than Houston does, and Houston has Deshaun freaking Watson. So uh, all the credit in the world to Gruden to Minshew. Uh, that offense is is really firing on all cylinders right now. They just put up thirty on Tennessee in week two. So. Uh, Minshew mania it's it's a real thing and he's gonna do his damnedest to keep this team from being uh bad enough to get Trevor Lawrence because because I yeah he's not a flash in the pan I hear a lot of people say that he's gonna be hot and cold like he was not as hot as he was in week two and week one but he was still good and in week one he was brilliant it wasn't just the accuracy it was the consistency like you know, look, I had gone from watching the Bears game to watching the Jacksonville game, so it was a bit of a thing quarterbacking-wise, right? But the consistency is what struck me about Minshew. All of the throws in week one were really pretty good. He threw up maybe two balls that he'd want back, 
and the rest of them were, like you said, very accurate, super consistent. Um, timing, uh, where he put the receiver to make the catch to make plays afterwards, even the screens, so much better. Uh, it's it's just such a leap when you go from bad quarterbacking to good quarterbacking in this league. It looks so much different, and Minshew is on the good quarterbacking side very solidly right now. Yeah, and on the indie side, uh, I, I would say there's a little bit of trouble with Rivers there. He played better in week two, but I think his arm is shot. Uh, that's the number one thing that jumped out when I watched that game is, man, you can't throw outside the hashes or outside the numbers from the far hash with Phillip Rivers anymore. Like, you just, you can't do it. The the arm isn't there. Um, he was kind of making his living with Naheem Hines, and, you know, week two, he was kind of, you know, throwing up sky balls to Mo Ali Cox because he could still do that. But in terms of being able to like drive the deep out, that that's off the table, I think, for Indy. So like they can still win a lot of games with Phillip Rivers, but I think the playbook is limited, uh, so to speak, just because of, of where his arm is right now at this stage of his career. Uh, we, we both hated to see the Marlon Mack injury. You know, Achilles is a tough one, especially for, for a running back in a contract year. Uh, it's... I would say it's more fortunate than anything that uh, they still had Jonathan Taylor, who happened to fall to them in, in top of the second round. That was pure luck that he was even available, and now it really is pure luck that, that he's there to take over from Marlon Mack uh, and, and for them to really not skip a beat in the run game. Uh, Naheem Hines, I think, together with Taylor, is a very, very good running back duo, especially for what Hines brings as a receiver, which is the one area where I think Taylor... I don't want to say he struggles, but he's not as dominant uh, as he's a receiver. Learning. He's learning. He, yeah, he's a work in progress. Um, but Hines and Taylor together, I think, is the perfect backfield to kind of take some of the pressure off of Rivers because at this stage, Rivers just can't do it all himself. He's not. He's past his prime, I'll just say that. Um, now, the Colts' defense, I think, uh, for two weeks in a row – has looked far better than I expected. Uh, they actually, believe it or not, are leading the league in pressure rate through two weeks. And you saw that in week one. And you definitely saw it in week two as well against Minnesota. Um, so now that I've kind of caught up on Colts games after week one and week two, uh, I'm very intrigued to see just just how far this defense can go. Because uh, it's, it's almost amazing what happens when you add DeForest Buckner in the middle of a defensive line. All of a sudden, everything starts working. Yeah, the first week, they were pretty quiet against Jacksonville. They were okay. The rest of the defense, I think, played better around the defensive line, but they really rebounded in week two, and that was good because I was like, hey, man, DeForest Buckner week one, I'm excited. And the first half of that Indy Jags game uh, wasn't wasn't amazing from the D-line. The rest of the defense is really good, but I was with you with Rivers. He came out in the first, I would say, quarter and a half. He was brilliant. He was on point. But you could see from the very first snap that his arm was at like a December level. He was still mm-hmm. there with anticipation and timing and placement. And he was putting the ball right on guys. But it was just, it was like watching a like a D2 quarterback in terms of, of arm strength. There's just no zip, no pop. So again, playing inside... We'll see how long that takes him, but if it starts to fade any from the level it's at, and we saw this a little bit, a little bit of foreshadowing, we saw this with Drew Brees last night as well. 
But uh, it'll be really interesting to see what Philip Rivers can do because he was great for about a quarter and a half, and then the bad habits came back, and he started throwing picks in Week One. Jonathan Taylor is going to be so much fun behind that behind that um, Indy Colts line, Quentin Nelson, and the rest of them. Um, it's he's. <laughs> He's everything he was in college, right? And yeah. they ran a bunch of Wisconsin <laughs> concepts late in week one and, and more in week two where he was running power and, you know, toss. Those are great runs for Jonathan Taylor. And like we said, he's a work in, work in progress as a receiver. He's not a bad receiver, but he didn't have a huge receiving role at Wisconsin. And he is still very fast, very big, and runs with great power. So he's going to be ton of fun. Um, although yeah, we're, we're definitely a Marlon Mack stand podcast and it was tough to see him go down. So all the best wishes to him in recovery. Um, one other note from week one that I wanted to get to is I ended up watching the Jets game from week one after we recorded and Marcus May was an absolute beast. Again, you're like the Jets lose Jamal Adams, man. They've got a rookie in Marcus, Marcus May. (laughs) He had a couple sacks, a pick was all over the field. Um, yeah, he played like a beast. Seemed like he toned it down a little bit in week two, but, uh, in week one, he looked like not a pro bowler. He looked like an all pro in week one. Yeah. And the talent was always there. The question was just, could he stay on the field? And cause when he's on yeah, the field, can he stay healthy? you know, when, when they had him and Jamal on the field at the same time, you could argue that they were the best safety duo in the league. Uh, it's just, we, we didn't get to see them on the field together enough. So I, I hope he gets to stay healthy this year of all years when everybody's getting hurt, of course. Uh, I hope he can stay healthy because, uh, damn, he's a, he's a really good player uh, when he is on the field. Uh, my last point from week one that I didn't get to, mainly because the data didn't come out till after we recorded, uh, this is something to monitor uh, every single week. A guy named Seth Walder over at ESPN Stats and Analytics kind of puts this out every single week. It's motion at the snap in terms of percentage of offensive plays that each team has motion involved as well as motion at the snap, meaning a player is in motion as the ball is snapped. It's been on the rise the last few years. It's kind of become uh, in vogue, so to speak. Only 4% of offensive snaps league-wide had it in 2017, 7% in 2018, 11% last year. So far this year, 14%. So that is becoming more and more a thing in terms of um, offensive philosophy around the league. And when you look at who used it the most in week one, it was the Rams where 33%, almost 34% of their offensive plays involved motion at the snap, which might make you think, okay, the Rams, uh, yeah, they Sean McVay, pretty innovative guy. And I was kind of digging back through uh, you know, where this originated, and he actually gave some comments after a game last year against the Ravens who led the league in motion at the snap last year when the Ravens blew him out 45 to six. And McVeigh said in that presser after the game, what a good job they do of creating conflict right before the snap, changing your fits. And I think when they got absolutely demolished by Baltimore, Sean went back this off season and that was last November, like mid to late November. Sean went back this offseason and said, okay, how'd they put up 45 on us? How can we do that? And the Ravens used motion at the snap 47% in that game. They were 34% average for the year. So I think Sean kind of, you know, licked his wounds after that game and, and augmented his entire approach for how this offense is designed. And 
uh, ingrained a lot more motion based on what beat him. And, and so far, they're 2-0, and, and they've been a very productive offense. So something to kind of track for the rest of the season is what teams are using motion at the snap, uh, and were they teams that got beat by Baltimore with it last year? Because uh, I, I think Baltimore might have almost created a, a new mini offensive movement here. Yeah, a new monster in the league. And yeah, McVay's taken it and turned it up to 11. And I'm glad you brought it up because I got a question on Twitter about it that I just didn't have a chance to answer. And, and they said, boy, it, it looked like as I went back, this person said, as I went back and looked at the game film, it looked like the Bears were moving more pre-snap, not necessarily at the snap. Why is that? And you answered most of those questions. Pre-snap movement and movement, especially at the snap, is to A, make the defense tip its hand and say what it's doing. So it gives the quarterback indicators of what defense they're in and which defenders are aligned to which of his weapons. And motion at the snap is, again, to basically snap the ball right when that offensive player is sort of in between two fits or is creating conflict between two defenders. It's to make two defenders make a choice about one player. Do you have him or do I have him? And the more uncertainty you can do, you can create, you can inject into your offense the more mismatches you're going to create. And it's a mismatch league, and that's exactly what it's for. So sorry to that user on Twitter that I didn't get back to him, but hope that answers your question, and definitely keep an eye on it because it's on the rise around the league. Our big lead for week two, as you and I were talking on Sunday, this was brutal. We were watching players go down around the league, and injuries is, we could just call this the week of injuries John Clayton, who's seen a ton of football over the years, said it's the worst week he can remember. Let that settle in, football fans. Yikes. That is ugly. So I put this together for the agenda. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll put that together, no problem. This was sobering. This is I always feel for players who get injured. I've had plenty of injuries just throughout my life, and. You think about all the things those players are going to go through in terms of rehab and surgery and whatever else. And there were so many of these. And then throughout Monday, they just kept coming as guys go in, they get checked, they get their MRIs, um, you know, the swelling goes down, they get a chance to take a look at whatever happened. And more people were out and we were just going back and forth on Twitter and, and sending each other messages. Oh, this guy's out for the year. This guy, Are you serious? You know, we said that like three times throughout yesterday. This is uh, this is so rough. We're just going to read this, and it's it's just hard to read. But basically, sh short version, the league lost a ton of talent. I thought I was going to be cute and add up the combined salary of all the players that are out for the year. Hundreds of millions. My, my calculator <laughs> got smoked after like four teams. It's really, it, this is just a ton of talent. So we're just going to read it off. Uh, we'll just alternate teams. I'll start with the Niners because Nick Bosa out for the year. Garoppolo, Mostert, Coleman, and Solomon Thomas all left the game and didn't return. Garoppolo is not going to play next week. Um, doesn't sound like Tevin's going to play next week either. We haven't heard about Solomon Thomas. Uh, Solomon Thomas, ACL, he's done too. Ah, oh, so he changes from went out to out, out. Oh, man, it just it gets worse and it's going to continue to get worse. So uh, next team up is the Seahawks. Yeah, Bruce Irvin, ACL, done. Marquise Blair, I believe that was also ACL. He's done for the year. 
Um, and Marquis Blair, if I remember correctly, was a little bit of friendly fire where uh, KJ came in after a play trying to get a tackle and kind of rolled up on him a little bit. So that that was just brutal. And Irvin, I mean, they they needed him. They needed somebody that could actually bring some semi-consistent edge pressure because they had nobody else. I mean, th- this Hawks defensive line was like the one defensive line in the league that could not afford a single injury. And this is this is devastating for them. Um, and uh, you know, I love Bruce Irvin as a player. He was he was one of those guys that came in with the kind of legendary 2012 Hawks draft class with Russ and and Bobby and all them. And um, you, you hate to see hate to see him go down he's he's been one of my kind of favorite edge rushers to watch over the last decade and Blair they moved from largely a sort of strong safety spot up into a like a big nickel spot and he's been playing the the sort of heavy slot role and doing so well early and I was fascinated to see that move because he was much more traditionally sort of a free safety in college and again the Hawks are going to take their their players strengths and sort of showcase them so I was super excited to see Blair and you know, gone for the year early. Next team up is the Colts, Malik Hooker, who's struggled with injuries, brilliant on the field, but again, like Marcus May, it's it's when he's on the field, he's out for the year. Paris Campbell and Matthew Adams both left. Uh, Campbell had a knee, Matthew, um, Matthew Adams had an ankle, neither returned, haven't heard a status update on them. But again, Malik Hooker, one of the elite deep safeties when he's on the field, uh, isn't gonna be there for most of this season. I'm trying to see if there's a... So Paris Campbell did not tear his ACL. Uh, he's had an MRI. Yeah, that was all I saw is it wasn't an ACL, but they didn't say what it's it was. It's a PCL. <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they just said sideline indefinitely, whatever that yeah. means. So. Not good. He had a huge week one. I didn't talk about him in the point after, but uh, you could see that Philip Rivers loves Paris Campbell. He had yeah. something like 12 targets in week one. He threw to Paris Campbell all the time and now not going to be available for sounds like quite some time. Yeah, uh, I would say one of the, the bigger injuries moving on to the Giants. Uh, how can you not just have your heart broken for Saquon Barkley? You know, he had, he had a pretty rough start to the year going up against that Steelers defense where it seems like he was getting hit in the backfield every single play and then uh, you know, week two to get hurt on consecutive plays with the second one being an ACL. It's just absolutely brutal for a running back in his third year who's trying to get a big payday, seeing all these other running backs getting, you know, 12 to 15 to $16 million a year, and he's trying to show out so that he can get that kind of deal too. It's it's just absolutely rough. So I, I hope he can come back strong next year and have the kind of year that we know he can have so that he can get that nice big fat payday that that we hope all these guys can eventually get, you know, that, that life-changing generational wealth. Um, that's the goal for a lot of these guys. And I hope Saquon comes back healthy so he can get it because there's very few better people in the league. And he, he certainly doesn't deserve that. Um, Sterling Shepard had a toe. I think it was a turf toe injury, if I remember correctly. I yep. don't know how long he's going to be out. Turf toe is one of those things where it doesn't sound bad, but I can promise you it hurts like a bitch, and it's it's tough to play through, especially for receivers. Um, I, I I'd be willing to bet that he does. It, no matter how many weeks he misses, he will he will have to play through it. it. It won't go away this season, and every single time he cuts on a route, it's gonna hurt. So he's he's a tough dude. He's gonna play through it at some point, I would bet, but it ain't gonna be comfortable. 
No, and we I was watching the Giants game because they played the Bears, and I was watching it with a bunch of Bears fans from um, Windy City, and everybody, to a person, there was nobody said anything when Saquon got hurt except for, damn, like, everybody was crestfallen even we're all bears fans and nobody wants to see that i mean you want to see you want to see your team beat the other team with all their players with all their weapons you don't want to win because they're depleted especially because of injury but saquon such a tremendous talent that as soon as he went down they showed the replay everybody groaned everybody was like oh no he's not coming back from that so this is a rough thing to watch on to the broncos uh, one of our favorites, somebody I've tracked since early in his career at SMU, Cortland Sutton, struggled back from injuries in week one, and you see this all too often, took a serious injury in week two and is now out for the year. Such a huge bummer. We had talked about him being the best receiver in the AFC West in a previous podcast. Um, now out for the year, we're not going to get to see it. Um, just as importantly, Drew Locke, who was looking pretty good. You did a film room on Drew. Uh, left with a shoulder injury, didn't come back. Jeff Driscoll had to come in and go the distance. And Draymond Jones had a knee and did not return either. So um, big losses for the Broncos, their primary A number one alpha receiver, their young quarterback who was uh, triggering that attack. Now, Drew will probably come back this year, but it's tough with a quarterback and a shoulder injury early in the year. We saw this with Trubisky and Bears last year. It's tough to come back from that and be confident and stand in the pocket and take hits because even if it's not your throwing shoulder, you're going to end up landing on that shoulder. You're going to end up getting hit on that shoulder. And it just adds some shakiness to your game, understandably, no matter how tough you are. And those are massive losses for the Broncos. Well, for what it's worth, 12 minutes ago, Shefty said that Locke is out for three to five weeks. You know who they just signed? To play back up to Driscoll? I, I heard this this morning. As, so I, I don't know if it's a bad habit or just a habit, but I check Twitter as soon as I get up. It's like when my alarm goes off on my phone, I shut off my phone. I flip on Twitter and start scrolling through to try and wake my eyes up. And to, what to my wandering eyes did appear but a Blake Bortles? <laughs> oh. You must be truly desperate to come to him for help. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, when do we start? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that signals that it's probably more going to be on the five-week end of the spectrum than the three-week end of the spectrum for Locke's shoulder. And he's a young quarterback. They've had so many injuries. They know there's there's no way. You know, they're, they're making a Super Bowl run this year anyway. So they're probably going to be safe with that shoulder. Um, and yeah, let it heal. Not, there's no reason let it not heal. to. Let it heal. You've already lost your number one receiver. You lost Vaughn. You know, yeah. Chubb's still and on I've a liked pitch Driscoll. I've liked Driscoll since he came out of college. He's a gamer. Uh, he's got a lot of skills, but he is, let's just be honest, he's not true lock. He's going to be one of those guys that's up and down. He's going to have great plays that make you go, wow, I didn't know he could do that. And then he's going to have plays that you're like, wow, I wished he hadn't done that. Um, so and he might be, get Jerry Judy killed by the end of the uh, year. There were a couple of hospital balls in that game. Uh, yeah. Jerry took a shot from Devin Bush that was just brutal. Yeah, oh I saw him God. land there, and I thought, oh, God, another one, because that was just the, the way this week was. I mean, literally, we're through one, two, three, four, five teams. There's, like, 
a boatload more on this. Uh, the Ravens, Tavon Young is out. The Panthers, CMC, high ankle sprain, four to six weeks. The Chargers lost. Tyrod Taylor, he didn't even play. He had a chest injury before the game. Rayshon Jenkins with a groin. Justin Jones with a shoulder did not return. The Jets had five guys that went out. Quincy Wilson, Brashad Perriman, Connor McGovern, uh, Arthur Millay, and Chris Hogan. None of those guys came back. The Falcons lost two guys off their defensive line. Tack McKinley and Caleb McGarry, uh, groin and MCL, respectively. The Rams lost Cam Akers, did not return. That was a rib injury. Packers, I missed this one. Being a Bears fan, Devontae Adams, probably, arguably one of the top five receivers in the league. I'd say top three went out with a hamstring. I didn't even see it because there were so many other injuries. Corey Lindsley, their center, hand injury, big deal for a center. Neither of those guys returned. Miami lost Byron Jones, one of the biggest free agent off signings, uh, signings of the offseason. Uh, groin, didn't come back. Vikings lost. Anthony Barr, shoulder, didn't return. Chiefs, Frank Clark, one of the biggest pass rushers signed last year. Illness, left the game, didn't come back. Darrell Williams, running back, ankle, neither of those guys returned. Jaguars, Brandon Linder, DJ Hayden, neither returned. That was a knee and a concussion. Uh, the Bills lost. Dawson Knox, concussion, did not return. And this isn't everybody. I just picked out the names I thought people would recognize. There's probably another third of this injury list of guys that uh, not out for the year. I tried to pull everybody that we knew was out for the year when we before we recorded. Bar, bar is out for the year, by the way. Peck. Oh, I know. All, that's the thing is that we, we get just all need the to stop talking about this. It it's it's literally I know it's literally turning my stomach is that, you know, and we know it's a brutal league. We've been watching the NFL for a long time. Uh, we should add it up sometime between the years and see how long that is. We know it's brutal. We know it grinds up bodies. It's it's a part of the sport. It's the dark side of the coin. This is the the thing we don't like about what entertains us so much. But this week was not standard this Jaw is dropping. it's amazing not only the high-end talent that's gone for the year but the amount of players that were lost and it speaks to the fact that there was a different off-season conditioning program i would say much less lots more zoom calls lots less in person certainly less live hitting there was no preseason to get the body, quote-unquote, ready for this, as ready as you can ever get a body for the beating it's going to take in the NFL. There was none of that sort of building up the callus. And, you know, we, you predicted a lot of soft tissue injuries in week one, and that absolutely happened. You said it was going to be hamstring city. It was. Week two, unfortunately, the hammer dropped, and it wasn't hamstring city. It was ACL city. And it's this is a lot of talent. If it was like this every week, there wouldn't be any games in week 15 and week 16. There wouldn't be anybody left. It's it's really, really sobering. By the way, on that on that Tyrod uh, chest injury, what happened, uh, it was like right after pregame warm-ups, which is why nobody knew that this was, that Justin Herbert was going to start until he started. Um, according to Rap, and this was tweeted, I think it was yesterday, um, Tyrod experienced difficulty breathing and was taken to the locker room for eval. And then they took him to the hospital to undergo yeah. evaluation. Um, 
so they called it chest. I don't know if it was like heart palpitations or if, if it like it was a lung issue or, or something like that. But he went to the hospital, and that's why Justin Herbert started. And to be honest, Justin Herbert, who I was not a super big Herbert guy as a prospect, uh, played pretty well <laughs> for starting without having any. He's uh, he's not giving reps. up that spot. If you have a longtime veteran and a rookie, and the rookie comes in with basically no prep, not as the number one through the week with five minutes head start and plays like that, uh, you play the young guy. I I don't. Yeah, I'm, well, and this don't, is a, don't tell that to Anthony I'm a, Lynn. I know, and I'm a Tyrod backer. Everybody knows I love Tyrod Taylor, and, and I love when he gets chances. And, again, <laughs> here's a chance that seems to have evaporated right before his eyes. Everybody thought he was going to be leading this team for easily five, maybe six weeks, uh, or at least until they sort of dropped out of contention before Herbert would come in. Um doesn't look like that's going to happen because, uh, as you said, Herbert played a very solid game on Sunday. It, what's funny, not funny, more frustrating to me, and again, I'm not like the biggest Herbert guy, but Anthony Lynn was like dragging Herbert after the game. He said, quote, there's a lot we didn't get, get done with Justin on the field yesterday. He's a backup for a reason. And he said Whoop. that if, Ty, if Tyrod's healthy, he's the starter. And I'm like, you just took the defending chips to OT on yeah, five, on minutes, five notice. minutes notice. What do you want? <laughs> I Yeah, I wonder if that's just old school sort of head coach mentality that I'm not going to give the rookie a big head, right? Because other than that, I don't see any justification for it. And I'm not even saying that's justification. I'm saying other than that, I don't see any reason for it. Um, not certainly something I would have done. I, I would have liked to bolster the young guy's confidence a little bit. And he, you know, I think he did that himself. Like Justin Herbert did that for himself. He knows now that he can get it done on the NFL field. And regardless, don't let anybody tell you that high round picks already know that. Like outside of guys like Joe Burrow, who are just supremely confident, Everybody wonders if they can get it done on the NFL field when they make the jump. It's a big jump. Even if you played in the SEC, uh, you know, even if you were a three-year starter, when you make the jump from the little stage to the big stage, everybody wonders the night before. Everybody gets butterflies. And Justin Herbert knows now. He's had that trial by fire, came on short notice, and he delivered. People around the league took notice. Like, he can play. Doesn't mean he's going to do it every week. He's still got to find consistency. And Anthony Lynn's right. Like, sure, they missed some opportunities. But if you're chalking that up and grading on a sliding scale because it's a rookie with five minutes notice, they hit a lot more than they missed. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. That was that statement bothered me from Lynn because you, you got a talented rookie quarterback who's, who does have his flaws. I get that. He does have his flaws. But you got a talented rookie quarterback that went out and had a promising game against arguably the best team in the league took him to overtime like it's uh I, I just i don't think you should kill a rookie quarterback's confidence after a, a solid performance that's just that's a bad decision by anthony lynn to to put that quote out to the media but anyway i digress uh before we do get into slightly happier notes of the show including the dominance of the tight end position all across the league in week two i do want to thank our sponsor for the week purple mattress Purple Mattress has been the most innovative sleep solution on the market for over 15 years now, and it's all because their own unique patented technology, the Purple Grid. And if you've never seen it, the Purple Grid has over 1,800 open-air channels throughout the mattress that keep you cool and comfortable throughout the night, and they're all highly flexible to relieve pressure on your body, no matter your size, your weight, or how you sleep. 
I can tell you from personal experience myself, having felt the grid, they sent me and EJ samples of this thing. It is, it's remarkably engineered. It's extremely supportive despite how it looks. Like you look at the thing, you look at all the vertical channels and you're like, there's no way that can support me. But then you feel it and you're like, okay, wow, this is... This is pretty crazy. It's really strong material. It's not hot at all, again, because of all that open air moving through the mattress. It's super comfortable. I, I love it. It's a really, really great mattress. And in fact, Purple is so confident that you're going to love it as much as me and EJ do that every single order comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Every single mattress also ships for free and is delivered right to your door. And at the end of your trial, if you're not completely satisfied, they'll come pick up your mattress at no cost to you. So if you want to try it out for yourself, go to purple.com slash bootleg10 and use promo code bootleg10. And for a limited time with that code, you'll get 10% off any Purple mattress order of $200 or more. Again, that's purple.com slash bootleg10, promo code bootleg10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. And with that being said, again, thank you to Purple for sponsoring the show. Um, EJ, we got to talk about these tight ends because... Week two was the week of the tight end. I'll kind of run down some of the stat lines. We had a lot of just monstrous performances from tight ends all across the league. Uh, I'll start with Mike Kosicki. Eight catches for a buck 30 and a, a several highlight grabs against this Bills defense. Also had a touchdown. Uh, Miami led Buffalo for a significant portion of that game, largely because Mike Kosicki versus Levi Wallace was just taking candy from a baby. Uh, he had a phenomenal game. Darren Waller seemed like he just destroyed the Saints defense all by himself last night. 12 catches, 103, also a tight end. He led them in yardage just like Kosicki did. Tyler Higby, 5 for 54 and three touchdowns. Uh, I mean, he just he put on a show. Uh, Jonu Smith, who started off hot and finished hot, 4 for 84, including a long one on the first drive of the game. He had two touchdowns. Travis Kelsey, 9 for 90 in a touchdown. Mo Ali Cox, 5 for 111, led the Colts in yardage. George Fant, 4 for 57, another touchdown and the two-point conversion right after. Uh, he was one of the few effective weapons they even had against a very, very good Steelers defense. They had no answer for him. Hunter Henry, 6 for 83. Evan Ingram, 6 for 65. He led the Giants in receiving. Jordan Akins, 7 for 55. Tyler Eifert. Tyler Eifert. Remember him? A Tyler <laughs> Eifert sighting. Yeah, I know. Tyler Eifert that's sighting. Why, 3 for 36. That's why I put him on the list. Yeah, I really mean, he didn't have the most dominant performance, but he had a, you know, he had a touchdown, which, uh, what was it, 2015 or 2016? I mean, he led the league in receiving touchdowns, so it's... it's it's good to see him still in the league and contributing, and especially after all the injuries he's been through. Um, but man, so many great uh, tight end performances, and you know we were t- kind of talking before the show about this. Uh, we do not remember a time when tight end was as talented at the top. And again, remember all this was done without George Kittle even being on the field for this week, who's arguably the best tight end in the league. This is, there has never been in the history of the NFL. So much talent at the top of tight end and so much depth at tight end. Like this is, in my opinion, the peak of the position in the history of the sport. Yeah, I look at this when I was putting this list together, you know, certainly Gesicki is a guy we'll talk about at the top because last week we talked about guys that are ascending. We talked about Mark Andrews sort of pushing his way into that top tier after his great week one game. 
if you watched this week's Dolphins game, Mike Gesicki, like a guy liked out of Penn State, but just took that game over. A bunch of those catches are going to be on his highlight reel when he retires. He had a crazy one-hander. But again, the production, 8 for 130 and a touchdown. Waller, we had talked about in our best receiver in the AFC West conversation a few weeks ago against the Saints defense, which is very good. 12 catches, a buck, three touchdown. Higby was incredibly efficient, only had seven targets, five catches, three touchdowns. Um, you know, all he does is catch touchdowns. Um, Johnu Smith, who's a, you know, you've been a big Johnu Smith supporter. But like you said, Kittle was out this week, and we didn't even mention a bunch of the other guys, like Zach Ertz, who's a great tight end. Hayden Hurst is out of Mark Andrews' shadow, if you want to say that. TJ Hawkinson is, you know, first-round pick who's going to produce a ton for the Colts. There hasn't been sort of top to bottom. If you if you roll the, the clock back like five years, there were four or five really good guys at the top, and then everybody else was looking for a contributor. And now, if you look at almost every team in the league, there's a difference maker at that position. And in fact, uh, Gusecki... Waller, Mo Ali Cox, Evan Engram all led their teams in receiving off this list. Um, several of these guys led their teams in scoring, obviously, like Tyler Higby with three touchdowns. But the position in general is having such impact in the league, and there is now so much talent that, again, four, five, six years ago, People started to see the impact of, of the Travis Kelseys and the Gronkowskis and everybody else that was at that top tier and said, hmm, we should start using that. It filtered up through the college game, and now all these guys have been drafted, and every year we're seeing a crop of guys that can make a difference at tight end. This year we talked about tight ends extensively in the draft. It's no different. Three years from now we're going to be talking about all those guys making a dent. So overall the position has changed and the sort of just abundance of wealth at that one position is notable so we're calling it the week of the tight end it's much better than the week of grievous injuries and so many of these guys showed out it just had to be said and then there's other guys that we didn't even mention that are sort of second tier guys that can have a big game whenever if russell wilson decides that will disley's the guy one week and throws him two scores <laughs> we're going to be talking about will disley like a talented player but he's not even on this list right we talked about 15 guys and there's more guys after that so Tight end in great hands in the NFL right now. Uh, something else that that really popped off in week two, uh, the kickers around the league talk about a bounce back performance. You know, kicking was a, a rough spot in week one. Yeah, week bounce two, was a big word for kickers in week yeah. one. There were many less bounces in week two. It was just notable, again, going through all the highlight packages in week one. It was doinks and shanks and double doinks and bounces off the crossbar and just crazy wide misses four and five yards week two everything kind of normalized again i think this speaks to a lack of preseason a lack of true sort of uh long camp kicking competition just the amount of kicking every day kicking in the stadium you're going to kick in as opposed to the practice field at the at the team facility all that stuff kind of normalized and there was the kicking game was much less exciting and that's a good thing Shout out to Harrison Butker, uh, kicker for the Chiefs, who in overtime did one of the most impressive kicking feats that I've personally ever seen. And keep in mind, across the league in week one, the league's kicker, kickers were at 41% 
in field goals beyond 50 yards. It was ugly. I mean, even Prater missed one, which he he almost never misses beyond 50. And so week two, it's overtime. Chiefs are driving down, trying to kick a field goal to win the game because Anthony Lynn did one of the dumbest coaching decisions I can remember in a long time and punted on fourth and one in OT when they're playing with house money. So if he really wants to blame Justin Herbert for the loss, maybe he should look at himself. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So anyway, Chiefs are driving. They're going to kick a 53-yard field goal to win it. Butker nails it directly through the uprights, but there's a false start. Move him back. Wah, wah, wah. 58. <laughs> Drills a 58-yarder, but oh wait, there's a timeout. They're trying to freeze him. God, okay, does he have, to, you know, is his leg gas? Can he get another damn near 60-yard field goal in OT to win this thing? And then he just uncorks that third field goal and just drives it right down the middle. It was so impressive. There's a lot of there's a lot of kickers around the league that I can't even count on to hit one 50 yarder. He hit three in a row, back to back to back within a minute. Um, just an incredible performance. Uh, next week we get to see Butker uh, face off, if you will, against arguably the greatest kicker of all time, and Justin Tucker. So if there was ever a game where you'd be excited about a kicker battle, <laughs> uh, that one's going to be it. Monday Night Football, Chiefs, Ravens, Butker versus Tucker. Yeah, we don't shout out kickers very much on the show, uh, but another one that deserves uh, certainly a ton of praise. We talked about his team at the top of the show. Josh Lambeau uh, down in Jacksonville is on a crazy run of made field goals. Uh, they flashed up that stat when I was watching the replay in week one, and I was like, wait, what? He's made how many in a row? Um, yeah, he is absolutely drilling it down there in Jacksonville. So, um, yeah, that, that might be your, your sum total of kicker shout outs for the year, unless one wins the Super Bowl. but, uh, <laughs> moving on, uh, we want to talk about Bill's Dolphins and I'm going to let Brett take it away. Uh, we both watched this game, but he was the first one to raise his hand and say, ooh, 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 me, me, me. I want to talk about this. So, uh, I'll let him put his thoughts out there. I'll add mine at the end, but what did you see in Bill's Dolphins? So two two key takeaways, well, multiple key takeaways, uh, but for the Bills specifically, Josh Allen is a monster now. Uh, I'm not saying he's flawless, like he's not Russell Wilson, but to see where he is now compared to where he was last year, compared to where he was as a rookie, compared to where he was at Wyoming, Wyoming completely different quarterback. Uh, the touch and ball placement, especially down the field, is the best it's ever been. I mean, he was laying it into Stephon Diggs deep down the field. He was laying it into John Brown deep down the field, just absolutely massacring this Dolphins secondary, who really did miss Byron Jones a lot. He popped a groin uh, trying to cover Diggs on a deep cross on the first drive. And uh, it, it was it was pretty much over from there. As soon as they had him out, then it was Noah Igbenogany, who's a 20-year-old rookie, youngest player in the league, trying to cover Stephon Diggs, an all-pro caliber receiver, man-to-man all game. Trust me, it didn't work out for Miami very well. Uh, Diggs, Diggs kind of ate him up. And Noah hung in there. I mean, he tried, but second game in the league, no offseason, you're 20 years old. Go ahead, cover Stephon Diggs for four seconds because the Bills' offensive line was playing light out. It's it lights out. It's just not. It's not a recipe for success. So, um, the Bills really took advantage of Miami, who wants to play man coverage ninety percent of the time. That's their ideal game plan. But they were hitting them with so many deep crosses and under routes and everything like that 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 break man coverage wide open. Eventually, they had to start playing more zone. 
And I was very curious when I was studying Allen, okay, how is he going to handle when they when they switch it up to zone? And I'll be honest, he almost threw a couple picks. You know, Kyle Van Noy almost got him when he baited him in the flat. Um, Noah, or no, I think it was Xavier, might have been Xavier, had one slip right through his hands that ended up being a catch to Stephon. So, again, I'm not saying he's without flaw. Uh, hang defenders in zone coverage still might be able to be a little tricky for him, which is a common problem for young quarterbacks. But overall against zone coverage, um, when they kind of went into empty, when they were using motion, like I talked about at the beginning of the show, to kind of clear up what the defense was and kind of clean up the picture for him, if he knew it was zone, then he was really slicing and dicing. He was kind of being a little bit more uh, cautious with his throws than when he was against man coverage where he was just chucking it down the field. So really loved Allen's progression. Um, Dable, I, Brian Dable, their OC, I would not be surprised if against uh, the Rams this week they go into empty a lot and putting running backs out wide to try to define those man zone looks for him. Again, because Allen, I think, still needs the picture defined for him before he takes the takes the snap. Um, but I think this, this week's Bills-Rams game is going to be a barn burner in terms of points. Uh, on the Bills defensive side, uh, my number one takeaway is that Levi Wallace is a liability, 100%. Mike Gesicki killed him. Preston Williams killed him. Devontae Parker killed him. Anybody that Miami lined up against him, he gave up, I think it was like 120 yards on like 13 targets. It was crazy. Just absolutely crazy. And, you know, Preston dropped a fourth down touchdown on him. Like any in-breaking route was just automatic. So I think if Milano and Edmonds are out again, we are just going to see an endless stream of like now slants off play action to clear the linebackers out of the way because Levi Wallace is not going to stop any of them. He cannot stop inside breaks at all. So I think Higby's going to have a big day. They're going to go into three by one. They're going to use motion. They're going to get Levi isolated. And unless Micah Hyde or Jordan Porter basically babysit him the entire game, he is going to be Sean McVay's bitch. He just absolutely will. Like, it's going to be brutal. So I expect a lot of points in this Bills-Rams game. A, because Levi Wallace is a liability. And B, because Josh Allen is really damn good. Yeah, I'm going to go with with Allen's touch. The, the thing that stood out to me the most, especially the way he started off the game, is Josh Allen has touch. That's a headline, folks. Um <laughs> It should terrify people because Allen, obviously coming out of Wyoming, the thing was the arm, right? Everybody, the arm, the arm, the arm. And he has one of the three easiest cannons in the league. It is ridiculous what he can do with a flick of his wrist, how deep he can get the football with how much velocity for how little motion he makes is ridiculous and everybody knows that about Allen but to see him come out against the Dolphins and throw you know eight or ten arcing touch throws that were on the money was like uh oh yep (laughs) Junior just learned his lesson look out and his progression has been very solid there was a question he really was at sort of a what I would call a break point for for young quarterbacks at the beginning of the season a lot of people were predicting a little bit of regression because statistically it looked like that was very possible. He'd had a sort of rapid ascent through last year, made a lot of progress. A lot of times a young quarterback will sort of plateau or backslide a little bit. Allen has pushed through that solidly with Brian Dable's help. And now to see him come out and start a game with a string of deep touch throws, the AFC East 
that should have sent shockwaves through the rest of that division and quite frankly the AFC in general because a Josh Allen with touch, he already had the running ability. He already had the scrambling ability in the pocket. He obviously has the ability to absolutely gun the ball through somebody's numbers. If he adds touch to that, look out. Sky's the limit because we all knew about the physical talent, but there were a lot of other limitations, and they are starting to get pushed down, and that's a big deal. Yeah, golf claps for for the entire Buffalo Bills staff. And, you know, yeah, a little golf claps there because we've known the Bills staff is one of the best in the league in terms of kind of getting the most out of the guys they have. And we were wondering if they were going to be able to, you know, kind of use that Midas touch on on their quarterback. And I'll be damned if Dable hasn't done a great job of developing him. So I would say right now, in terms of most dangerous teams in the AFC, it's KC, it's Baltimore, it's Buffalo. Everybody else is fighting for fourth, in my opinion. Like it's yeah, I'll be that includes New England. (laughs) Yeah, my jaw dropped in that first quarter because it was one arcing rainbow after another and again they weren't just things he was hucking up this is one thing about Allen is he can throw from like any arm angle and it doesn't look like he's even working at it did you see okay the the 47 yard um stutter go to digs that he threw uh you know Quentin Spain was getting bull rushed and kind of thrown into his ankle so he actually jumped as he threw that ball and just flicked it 50 yards down the field uh, without even, not even just being off platform, having no platform, period. I mean, he was literally levitating in the air as he threw that ball, and it was still on the money, just a huge gain to digs deep down the field against man coverage. That was one of the most impressive throws I've seen all year, uh, just pure arm talent. And, I'm again, we're just sitting here going, okay, he's always he's always had the ability to do that, but to see him actually do it, consistently like not just once a game but six or seven times in this game against some pretty good corners I mean you know Xavier Howard's out there Brandon Jones is a safety we like Noah Igbenogany's a corner really really like um like this was not a, a slouch secondary that he was beaten up like th- they held Cam Newton to like 115 yards the week before so yeah, like th- it's a good secondary and Jones or and Allen just absolutely torched them so again uh, Bills are a very dangerous team, not just defensively, but offensively. And I do kind of want to touch on Cam Newton, who we've mentioned a couple times in the show, because uh, another game that you and I both kind of sat there, we're like, oh, we got we to gotta highlight this thing. Uh, even though the Bills are looking like the front runners in the East, the Patriots are not going to make it easy on them because Cam Newton looks like Cam Newton. He looks healthy. He looks comfortable. He looks exactly like he did... Uh, I don't want to say early in his career in Carolina because he looks better than when he was early in his career in Carolina because he's he's accurate. He's a great decision maker. I mean, it's hard to throw 400 yards on Seattle, even, even with their injuries. Um, you know, with Jamal Adams back there, uh, with Blair, you know, as a good nickel, he still played like most of the game. Um you know, like there's other than defensive line, like there's a lot of talent. You know, Bobby Wagner is one of the best coverage linebackers ever. Like there's a lot of talent in that Seattle defense. And to throw for almost 400 yards on them on the road when you've only been on the team for like a month, that's extremely impressive. So Cam looks like Cam to me. Uh, I think this Patriots offense, which does not have very many weapons, is still going to be productive solely because they have Cam Newton. 
And my number one takeaway is I still cannot believe the Bears didn't throw any money at him because I look at Mitch Trubisky and I look at what we know Nick Foles is and I look at what Cam Newton did last night or a couple nights ago on Sunday Night Football on the road in Seattle and I'm like, buddy, what am I missing here? Why why is he not in a Bears uniform? Uh, I don't know. And all I'm going to say about that is anybody who did not sign Cam, because that's everybody. Let's not forget that Cam was literally the last guy standing in the game of musical chairs. He got a dinky contract to be a starter in a premier franchise because he sat on the sidelines. And there were some worries about injury, about age. There were plenty of videos out there of Cam working out like a monster and looking in tremendous shape. Again, you couldn't bring him in. You couldn't get a physical with COVID, whatever else. I don't think that's it. I don't think there's a good reason. This is kind of like Anthony Lynn's comments about Herbert's. I just don't think it was a good choice. And anybody who didn't sign Cam deserves what they get, including Chicago. And I say that as a Bears fan because Cam Newton's talent is obvious. Anybody that was predicting the Patriots' demise in the AFC East was a little bit early because, oh, there's some head coach up there and he hasn't left yet. He was always going to make a competitive team, but as soon as you give him Cam Newton, that was the ah moment of the offseason, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. sits around. Belichick does this year after year, waits until everybody else is out of the game, and then goes, hey, Cam, you, you want a little money to win the AFC? And Cam's like, you bet, coach comes up to New England, and you're going to see a variable game plan. The first week we saw extremely run-heavy. You know, Then he comes out against Seattle, like you said, an extremely talented secondary and lights them up for 350-plus yards. The goal line package with all heavy that the Pats are running and Cam Damn back there. unstoppable. Legitimately terrifying, and that's the second yeah. time I've said terrifying in, in two game recaps, but, you know, Josh Allen with touch, terrifying. That goal line package from the Patriots, terrifying. And, you know, Seattle stopped it, which is cool, but there's a lot of teams that aren't going to stop that, especially as they vary it up. And Belichick, you know, is going to be a complete chameleon. And Cam is happy to change along with him, run one week, throw the next week, throw deep the next week, throw short the next week. We're going to see that complete variability from New England. That's a hallmark under Belichick. And... You know, let's flip it to the Hawks side. Russ is the early front runner for MVP, and I saw the staggering stat yesterday that just blows my mind. And it said that Russ has never received a vote for MVP. Yeah, blame Chris Collinsworth for that. Apparently, who uh, he t- he told a story during the broadcast where he got his ballot in late one year, um, and so they they kicked him out. He's not able to vote for MVP anymore. Uh, and he said his vote would have been for Russell Wilson. <laughs> so yeah. he's like, yeah, PFF said he was the MVP, so I was going to vote for vote with PFF, and, uh, but he got kicked out. So he, I, uh, weirdly enough, Chris Collinsworth is not an MVP voter, even though he's you know, a former part player, about that broadcaster. Is, I'm just going to say that again. The Collinsworth story is interesting, but Russ has never received a vote for MVP. I like, know, you would expect it to come from somebody. What, what world are we living in? Russell Wilson has played some very good football for a bunch of years. This is not a flash in the pan thing. This year, 
He's cranked it up to 11. Forget it. It's He is playing at the highest level of his career. The whole let Russ cook thing. He ought to own the Food Network at this point because he is cooking <laughs> just crazy. They're letting him off the chain. If he doesn't parlay this into something where he cooks a dish every week um, on TV, I, I, his agent's not doing the right thing. But Russ on the football <laughs> field right now is as close to unstoppable as a quarterback as there is in the National Football League. And I say that having watched Aaron Rodgers hang 40 points on two consecutive opponents. Like those guys, I highlighted them in week one. They are playing at a an ultra high level right now. And anytime Russ is playing that well, he can carry the team. Now, Seattle has plenty of other talent. We talked about it on the defensive side. We should mention a guy named DK Metcalf. I was DK just Met- going to bring him up. I bet you were. Now, DK Metcalf is the son of an NFL offensive lineman, um, and he plays wide receiver. And he is a massive human being that also happens to be very athletically talented. He was not particularly talented in one test at the Combine, and a bunch of people said, oh, I guess he can't cut. And therefore, he inexplicably fell in the NFL draft, and the Seahawks ended up with him, and uh, boy, Russ couldn't be happier. He has a guy that looks like he is going to be, from the sort of physical dominance standpoint, and again, we talked about it with Josh Allen, right? Physical dominance was not a question for him coming out. DK is a massive human being, 220-something pounds, 6'3", 6'4", runs like a deer. It's ridiculous. So the physical was never really in question in terms of what he brought to the table, but you saw him start to snap off short routes in week two. You saw him start to give subtle head and hip fakes enough that he could get outside leverage um, instead of just driving outside leverage right off the line and saying, hey, I can bull over you. Now he's giving that faint step to the inside and, oh, if they bite on it at all, he's just turning on that gas and going by him. The development, the maturation of DK as a receiver and his connection with Russ is starting to manifest in the Northwest, and it is not going to stop. You know what's fascinating? This was a note that was brought up, and you're you're a Bears fan, so this is interesting Bears history. So Terrence Metcalf was a guard for the Bears Mm -hmm. uh, from 02 to 08. You know who Terrence Metcalf's teammate was when DK was a, a little boy? Greg Olson. <laughs> Greg Olson uh, has been teammates with both of the Metcalfs, yes, father and son. Ban the generation. <laughs> that reminds me of all the, the Griffey stories from when Griffey Jr. came in and Griffey Sr. were still playing. They got to play together for a little bit, but there's all those teammates that were like, yeah, I played with your old man and now I'm playing with you. So I hadn't thought of Greg Olson because, yeah, but that just makes me sad all over again that Greg Olson left Chicago. We're not going to go into that because I've only had one <laughs> cup of coffee this morning and I don't want to start crying in the empty cup. <laughs> but no, DK Metcalf, Russ, uh, Chris Carson as a receiver. If, if you had Chris Carson as a receiver <laughs> on your 2020 scorecard go ahead and mark that down but i sure didn't um again chris carson the hammer is a running back and now uh, has receiving touchdowns in the first two weeks so uh, a little bit of variability from from pete and schottenheimer so a very interesting team and the bottom line out of hawks patriots we both expect both of these teams to make very deep runs into the playoffs they are talented teams they are extremely well coached on both sides the hawks a little bit more loaded up certainly on offensive talent um but the patriots are going to get it done in creative ways with what they have and and cam's going to be the engine for that um i would say the patriots 
hopes rest on Cam pretty solely, but it's hard not to say that the Seahawks' hopes don't rest pretty solely on Russell in exactly the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do kind of want to wrap up the show here because, uh, you know, shocker for us, we're getting a little bit long. We got a segment called The Blitz where we're kind of alternating one-sentence thoughts, and I guarantee you some of these games are probably going to show up uh, on the on the point after next week because we cannot expand on them this week. But uh, kind of alternating quick little thoughts uh, from me and EJ and all the other games for Week 2. I'll start off uh, with the Packers game. Uh, Aaron Rodgers put up a 40-burger in back-to-back weeks, and that that makes him like he's playing not just like Aaron Rodgers he's playing like pissed off Aaron Rodgers which is an entirely different level and I am terrified for the rest of the NFC North because if he keeps playing like this I mean hitting every single throw uh you know Aaron Jones seems to be popping off runs every five or six carries like Packers offense is ridiculous and I am I, for one, am excited to see it go up against the Bears defense. Uh, Okay. Well, I don't know about excited, but yeah, the Packers are rolling right now. Um, My quick hit thought, Bucks hit where they missed in week two. Um, So where they missed in week one, they actually hit those throws and plays in week two, and they rolled the Panthers. Brady just does not lose two games in a row. If you look back at his career stats, that is a trend. Um, I bet on the Bucks this week because of this, and they delivered. They were really close, that Bruce Arians offense. Again, lack of offseason, lack of preseason to kind of get that honed in. Um, they hit their stride in week two and going to be dangerous from here on out. Kyler Murray, who's a favorite of the show, uh, not he doesn't just give the cards a chance in every game. He makes them favorites in damn near every game. His ability as a thrower and as a runner, I mean, some of the cuts he was making in the open field, he gave Landon Collins the old Walter Payton scissor kick and just, he's he's ridiculous. He's on a totally different plane of existence athletically. Um, if it weren't for for Russ being Russ and Pat being Pat and Lamar being Lamar, I would say he's, a, he's an MVP favorite because the Cardinals are going to be a damn good team with him. Yeah. The Falcons wide receivers are crazy good, but that team's ability to make huh decisions and lose games is really <laughs> startling for a team with that much stability at general manager, coach, and quarterback. Those are three very sort of key stability indicators in the NFL. If you keep that trio together, typically a team is going to win and win win quite a bit. And if you don't, obviously that trio is going to get blown up in some capacity. The Falcons have a ton of stability at that trio, and they lost a heartbreaker if you're an Atlanta fan on Sunday with some really boneheaded decision-making. But back to the wide receivers, Calvin Ridley has been very good in his time throughout the league, and he is ascending from very good to, uh, is he the number one on that team? And yes, I know Julio Jones is still on that team. He is pushing into that territory. His last two weeks have been red hot. Oh, Rams, Eagles. Where do we even begin? Uh, I know where I begin because it's been two straight weeks and Carson Wentz is staggering. He is not a player on center right now. He is struggling and it is hard to watch. It's it's so I was I was looking at some kind of analysis from our buddy Ben Solak, who's a big Eagles guy, and he was kind of going back and forth with uh, Quincy Avery who's a notable quarterback coach. He's Deshaun Watson's QB coach, uh, Jalen Hurts' QB coach. 
uh, among, ironically, Jalen Hurts' QB coach, who's the backup to Wentz. Um, and he said that Wentz's base is getting way too wide. It's gotten wider every single year. And when you're throwing from a wide base, it kind of locks your ability to rotate your hips. And if you're not rotating your hips, that means you're kind of throwing all arm and it can really be a huge accuracy problem. So uh, kind of taking his lead on things since he is a quarterback guy, uh, Wentz's mechanics seem to be kind of messy right now. He's got to clean them up. He looks like uh, he's hurt. I well, he did have a was it a groin or a no? Back he or looks like he's got a core season. injury right now because he's not rotating correctly, and it just the end result, even to the sort of untrained eye, is yeah, that looked that looked gross, right? He, he did have an injury, yeah, uh, in the pre or in the in camp. I can't remember. What I it think was. he's trying to play through something because Carson Wentz, quite frankly, is a better quarterback than what he showed for the last two weeks. Yeah, it's been brutal. Speaking of, Kirk Cousins fell back to earth with a very solid thud. He went up against the buzzsaw <laughs> that is Aaron Rodgers in week one and actually played a really good game. It got overshadowed by the fact that Aaron Rodgers played a better game, but Kirk Cousins was surprisingly good against a very solid Packers defense in week one. Uh, not so this week. Uh, Kirk Cousins' quarterback rating was below a guy sitting on a bar stool spitting seeds at the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I looked at his because uh, I have him on my bench in fantasy, and he had negative fantasy points. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was, like, was oh, good not Lord. good. All right, you want to take the Bears? Come on, come on. Yeah, you take the Bears? I mean, they're they're two and zero. Uh, you know, if uh, we're you know? if we're talking about good stuff, they are two and zero, and two and zero with ugly wins are win. Absolutely, and it's better to be working on stuff at two and zero than a work in progress at zero and two, right? So we'll take the wins. They are not. We're not saying that they're world beaters. They are not. They have plenty to work on. They are a flawed football team right now, but they are two and zero. Yeah, uh, I. Also, just my number one note on the Bears is mad respect for Dave Montgomery for playing through a lot. It seems that guy's like he's getting banged up. Yep. Uh, he's getting banged up over and over and over again. And the offensive line and him are like, in my opinion, what's holding this offense together right now is Dave Montgomery being a warrior and the offensive line just getting shit done. So uh, they've they've done a great job of protecting Mitch with that run game. And I hope it continues. And I hope, I hope Monty can just get healthier because right now he's banged up, but he's still putting in work. Yeah, the Raiders look really dangerous, and I would say they are a consistent pass rush and a hot run away by Derek Carr from just tearing the lid off. They manhandled the Saints team on Monday Night Football. Uh, we've talked at length about the fact that Mike Mayock has delivered a lot of talent to that team, and John Gruden is using it right now. They they look really dangerous. They've only got a couple of weak spots that I mentioned, and if they shore those up, uh, or import some talent maybe before the trade deadline, something like that, the Raiders are a team that could push very, very deep into the playoffs this year. 100% agreed. Uh, now, the Bengals, they will not be a playoff team, but they do, I think, have a playoff caliber quarterback that when they surround him with more talent, they are going to be a playoff team because Joe Burrow looks phenomenal. Uh, it's a shame that he has the offensive line in front of him that he does because he might not survive until the Bengals get a better offensive line. No, please, uh, please like, make that not true. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say this is going to happen, but anybody else get some flashbacks to Andrew Luck because yeah. it's, 
I put a thing the, on Twitter ugh. this this week that there should be an emergency lineman clause that if a team earns a top five pick, not trades for it, but earns a top five pick and takes a quarterback, that they should get an extra fourth rounder to get a guard or a center. Just for the protection <laughs> yeah. of, of top quarterbacking talent so it doesn't get shredded like Andrew Luck did. So. Or here's an idea. Don't sign Bobby Hart to a three-year deal. Oh, yeah, that's a whole other episode. But speaking of O-lines, the Broncos got completely, insert the word you want here, overwhelmed, owned, manhandled, whatever you want by Pittsburgh. By the end of the game, like Dalton Risner was just shaking his head at like, what, guys? Come on. Like, I, it was complete domination. If you watch the third and fourth quarter of what Pittsburgh was able to do against the Broncos O-line, and really that's not such a, you know, a shot at the Broncos O-line as it is saying Pittsburgh's defensive line is playing at a crazy high level right now. And all the credit to Tomlin and his staff for shaping that D-line into just pure killers. They shredded the Broncos. The Broncos had no answer to try and stop that rush. Um, Locke went out hurt. Driscoll ran for his life all day. Uh, Just a complete domination of one unit over another. Absolutely. Um, And to wrap this up, First ever time we've done the Blitz. The Titans, especially Ryan Tannehill, I mean, to see what Tannehill has done since getting out from under the thumb of Adam Gase uh, is one of the best stories in football. He doesn't just look like a good quarterback. He looks like a great quarterback. His efficiency is through the roof. His touchdown-to-interception ratio is through the roof. His decision-making is great. His accuracy is great. He still has some mobility. Uh, not as spry as he was when he was coming out of AM, obviously. But, uh, like, this is a this is a real, like, damn good playoff-caliber quarterback. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy that they kind of didn't take the bait and go after Brady this year and that they, they're kind of moving with Tannehill for the future because I think they're a better team with Tannehill than they would be with Tom Brady. I truly believe that. Like, and the, nothing against Brady. Yeah, I think second year, second year in the system. And this is, again, just another shout to... You know, players aren't necessarily good or bad when they come out of college. Some are, but those are at the extreme ends of the spectrum. System fit and coaching makes all the difference. And it can be good and it can be bad, right? Pat Mahomes going to arguably the best quarterback situation in the NFL with Andy Reid and Matt Nagy as his quarterback coach for the first year and and developing in that system means great fun for all kinds of NFL fans unless you root against the Chiefs. But same thing with Tannehill. Had a ton of talent, wasn't necessarily maximized or put in a system where you could see all of it. You saw flashes of it. And now, again, over the last season and a half, really seeing that sort of maturation process and a mesh with a coaching staff and a system that really worked for him. And, and again, that means really quality football out of a player who had a ton of talent um, and just found the right fit. So... That's the end of the Blitz for this week. We want to put out a big shout-out. We've been working for multiple weeks now on a complete new logo revamp, which you will see for bootleg football. We finally got to roll it out on Sunday to the world. Um, Had been sitting on my hands for weeks trying to finalize that, and we finally got it out. Big shout-out to Will Robinson, uh, our designer, for putting together such a cool logo program. We love it. It looks damn good you'll see it on many podcast outlets if you're downloading from those this week uh, i've changed it on all my twitter stuff you'll see it on the youtube channel very soon 
Uh, quick shout that there will be a shop up soon. You're going to be able to buy bootleg logo t-shirt in your team colors. We did it as a three-color design, and we have adapted it to all the current uniform colors in the NFL, so you will be able to buy your local flavor of bootleg football podcast shirt, which is pretty darn cool, but super excited about that. Look for it in the coming weeks. Um, what else you got while we wrap this up, partner? I got to go to work. Well, I am working on a Josh Allen film room to sing his praises and give him his his fair due. So that'll be coming out this week. I'm really excited for it. And then the week after that, I think I'm going to do something on motion at the snap, uh, especially assuming uh, the Rams kind of use it a lot against Buffalo this week. Uh, So I'm I'm excited for that. The next two film rooms coming out between now and next Wednesday, I think are going to be really, really interesting. Hope you guys like them. Uh, And with that, we got we got a football game in a couple days. We got another Sunday coming up soon, and then we'll be back for another week three recap edition of the Bootleg Football Podcast early next week. Thank you guys for sticking with us. I know this episode was uh, in classic bootleg fashion, pretty long, but uh, we've been told in the comments you guys enjoy that. So thank you for listening all the way through. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Purple Mattress. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you then.